Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, and that link will be in the show notes. Emotional pain is processed in similar circuits, but you can't control it. You can't see it. You get to suffer. Humans don't tolerate emotional pain. Stress is the inflammation that robs us of life, energy, and happiness. Our typical solutions for gut health and hormone balance have let a lot of us down. We're over-medicated and underserved. At The Less Stressed Life, we're a community of health-savvy women exploring solutions outside of our traditional Western medicine toolbox and training to raise the bar and change our stories. Each week, our hope is that you leave our sessions inspired to learn, grow, and share these stories to raise the bar in your life and home. Before we get into the episode, I've got two things happening right now that I'm really excited about. First, something that weighs really heavy on my heart is burnout potential. Everyone is so good at go, 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 glue track technology that we often just need to stop, rest, and reset. So I'm thrilled to announce Reset in Sedona, a restorative wellness retreat for women craving good food and adventure. Now, I have a lot of feelings about how retreats are non-negotiable, and I've been practicing for this for years, attending and hosting other private retreats. So if an intentional reset to fill your cup sounds good to you, you can head to the show notes to find the link for Reset in Sedona or go to kristabigler.com slash Reset in Sedona. And the second is that I'm currently taking intro calls for clients to start in the new year. I work with people that feel like they're doing everything right in health, but still have food sensitivities, subpar energy and mental focus, gut issues and eczema. I help them with a sustainable way to eliminate symptoms and feel their best using testing, synergistic nutrient repletion, and supporting several major systems in the body for balance. You can go over to kristabigler.com forward slash FSS. Both links will be in the show notes. And on to the show. Today, I have a return guest. Dr. David Hanscom was last year in 2019. And I think that was episode like around 70, 71, 72, something like that. It was actually a two-part series. The first one we talked about, I think probably back in control and spinal pain or overall pain. And then the second one, we really talked about anger and families, which I think would behoove me and probably everyone to go back to listen to that. And recently, I was just telling him offline that I was interviewing Bruce Lipton, who said, you should have David Hanth come back. And I said, I really remember enjoying him at the time and sharing your work with a lot of people. So since that time, you quickly got on my calendar. I started rereading your book and just loved it. So I cannot wait to have a new conversation about what you're excited about right now. 
Let me introduce you, if you do not know, Dr. David Hanscom. He had an orthopedic spine surgery practice focused on helping patients with failed back surgeries. He quit his practice in Seattle, Washington to present his insights into solving chronic pain, which really evolved from his own battle with it, which will start. Stories, I think, are really how we get engaged with someone. So his book called Back in Control is associated with an action plan called The Doc Journey. So he's got that book. Another book, Do You Really Need Spine Surgery? Take Control with a Surgeon's Advice. And then another book, which we'll talk a little bit about today. So out of interest, he's also got a Psychology Today blog called Anxiety, Another Name for Pain, which I thought was really interesting. And he's got a vision to connect clinical medicine with the science and emphasize the importance of the healing relationship between the clinician and patient. So welcome back, Dr. Hanscom. Thank you. Happy to be back. Yeah. So I've been going through my own different journey as a clinician that you kind of went through, but you were very personally involved, which is, dang it, does anything matter except the nervous system? No, (laughs) that is the thing that holds us back. And so your book opens up just a little bit talking about your story, but there's really a wildlife biologist at the beginning and he gets thrown from a horseback. He's in a mess. He's seeing you for kind of a second. And it's from his perspective. He's the one who wrote the foreword, I think. It's in his perspective. He visits you and you tell him, you shouldn't have back surgery, essentially. And you give him an assignment. And the next day, he has no back pain from doing this writing assignment. And it's kind of unbelievable a little bit. And I think that's how it was for you when you kind of discovered this. So will you open this just with a little taste of kind of your story and how you got into this work, first of all? Well, I practiced by a surgeon in Seattle since 1986. And I was one of those surgeons on both sides of the fence. I did very aggressive surgery. I felt guilty if I could not help people with surgery. And surgeons honestly feel like they are the final definitive answer. Mm-hmm. And patients think the same thing. It's a big operation. We're going to solve the problem. The problem is it's only a solvable problem if there's a surgical problem to fix. Mm-hmm. So if you have just pain without knowing what the problem is actually coming from, surgery is sort of a random event. It doesn't really work. The success rate of doing a back fusion for back pain is about 25%. So there's actually double the chance of making people worse with spine surgery. In my world was salvaging spines that had prior surgeries and breaking down. So for example, I had one gentleman who had 29 surgeries in 20 years and he's fusing his neck to his pelvis. And unfortunately, that's become fairly common in this day and age because we're now doing bigger operations that don't work rather than the small operations that don't work. With bigger operations, there's bigger complications, and people don't do very well with failed back surgery. It destroys people's lives. At the same time, I went into chronic pain myself, which involved 17 different symptoms. I had migraine headaches, my ears were fraying, my feet were burning, their skin rashes popping up, my stomach was a mess. I had anxiety, depression, bipolar, and OCD all at the same time, and I was a complete mess. Jumping way forward, I came out of this whole process by accident with this exercise called expressive writing. It was actually put out in David Byrne's book, Feeling Good. And I didn't know the data on expressive writing, but it turns out there's over 2,200 research papers that shows expressive writing changes your body's chemistry. You have lower viral load, lower inflammation, wounds heal faster, school performance is better, athletic performance is better. And it's an incredibly simple exercise. You simply write down your thoughts and tear them up. So the gentleman you just described, his name is Mark Owens. He is a scientist. And he had been in chronic pain for nine years, horrendous pain, high-dose narcotics, not doing well at all. And he'd been in Africa for 23 years helping save wildlife, but the doctors hadn't asked him about stress. And he turns out he left Africa after his third assassination attempt. And so he's severe stress, his whole body hurts. 
He broke his back, falling off of a horse. He developed severe chronic pain. He, within three days of starting the expressive writing, his pain disappeared. Now, that sounds crazy. And most people that start the expressive writing don't have that response. But expressive writing is the one step that starts the process. And so jumping ahead in the story, started with expressive writing and adding on different layers of things to calm down the nervous systems, people started to heal consistently. So I've watched hundreds and hundreds of patients heal. I was watching three to five patients every week being badly damaged by spine surgery. I walked in the room one day and saw a kid who was 32 years old paralyzed by an operation he didn't need. And they just said, that's it. 32 years old, went to the computer, I was making rounds, and he was paralyzed. So I said, I'm done. I can't keep watching people being hurt at this level when I'm watching people get better at this level. They're getting rid of the self-directed process, minimal resources, no risk, and they're going to pain-free. So myself, 17 different physical and mental symptoms, they're all gone. They're gone. Now, going fast forward even further, I started to realize that the mental pain was the bigger problem by far. The research paper heard last week that human beings simply do not tolerate emotional pain. So if you have emotional pain, particularly if you have an average childhood, that your body has a lot of emotional pain stored in it, that the body will actually create physical pain as opposed to suffering emotional pain. Human beings do not tolerate emotional pain. I also noticed that in my practice years ago that I had four gentlemen come into my office over a span of two weeks. They had surgical lesions, but they had they were on the schedule. But I looked at their spine questionnaire and they had put down 10 out of 10 on anxiety, depression, and irritability. I'm going, huh. So they asked them the question, well, if we do an operation to get rid of your leg pain, you gotta live with the anxiety the rest of your life, or we could drop down your anxiety and you had to live with the leg pain, what would you do? They literally jumped out of their chairs and said, well, if we get rid of the leg pain, will my anxiety drop down? I go, no, it's a different problem. So every one of them wanted to get rid of the anxiety. They just said, this is intolerable. So it's a huge wake-up call for me that people don't tolerate mental pain. And I realized a lot of people were coming to me for mental pain manifesting as physical pain. But it turns out that the way the brain works, that you'll actually choose physical pain, this is unconscious, of course. There's some physical pain where you can see the suffering, you can validate it somehow, you have a slight amount of control over it. You protect yourself against expectations of yourself and other people. So you have some say over physical pain, whereas emotional pain is processed in similar circuits, but you can't control it. You can't see it. You get to suffer. Humans don't tolerate emotional pain. So they came out in a research paper heard last week out of Arizona. They did this in the lab, and they actually demonstrated that people actually would choose physical pain over mental pain and or the brain will make it up. It'll create physical symptoms. So that's been around for a while, by the way, but surgeons don't know that. So if you come to me with extreme emotional pain, but it's manifesting as physical pain, I haven't asked you exactly what's going on in your life that might be causing pain in general. But another woman who is at 55 years of chronic pain, she's now 86 years old. She's now been pain-free for over seven years. She's done the process that we've worked through. And I didn't think after having pain that long that you could solve it, she's pain-free. She's thriving. But when the doctors didn't ask her at age 30, her, her ex-husband had committed suicide. Then in 2008, when her pain really got worse, her son committed suicide. Nobody ever asked her that question. So in medicine right now, we're not simply, we don't know our patients. We don't know the circumstances. And so we just keep going after structural solutions to a physiological problem. And we're really hurting people. I have this, we have the same situation. In my practice, and I usually talk about this with clients that 
there's this health triad and you can put any symptom through the health triad. Is it an emotional, mental nervous system issue? Is there a structural issue or is there a nutritional issue? And there's usually a little bit of everything, but very commonly, as you experience, people come to me looking for nutritional solutions for inflammation. And half of what I'm focused on is the nervous system, right? Because if we don't do that, it's informing the immune system, which triggers right. the inflammatory mm-hmm. response. And with pain, I this was really bothering me for the last year or two. And I did not think of exactly your work when I was noticing it, but I was noticing that people with chronic pain or quote unquote fibromyalgia, were, they all had depression every single one of them that I encountered. And I had this conversation with a doc that focuses on neuroinflammation recently about the same thing. It's like, once you trigger the brain to feel pain, it's like this terrible loop that's kind of hard to get out of. Right. Um, I'd like to clarify one thing is that inflammation is correct. It's a little bit of an overused word right now. Yeah, I agree. We should call it threat physiology. And it consists of several different parts. And so basically physiology, by the way, for the audience, is how the body functions, not the structures, how the body actually functions. So Bruce Lipton once pointed out really sort of very succinctly, what's the difference between a cadaver and a living human being? Because the structure's there, but it's energy and life and movement. A parked car has no symptoms. You have to turn the car on. And in medicine, we've gone almost completely to structure. There's even a term called medically unexplained symptoms to say, well, we know you're suffering, but we can't find anything wrong. The term actually should be medically explained symptoms because everything is explained by your body's chemistry. So we talk about threat physiology or fight or flight physiology. You have what's called inflammatory cytokines, which you just mentioned, that inflames everything. By the way, half the brain is the immune system, so your brain itself is inflamed. Secondly, your neurotransmitters, these little chemicals in the brain that allow cells communicate with each other, go from calming acetylcholine to excitatory glutamate. So you have now excitatory neurotransmitters. Your nerve conduction doubles. Then you have cortisol, which is consuming fuel out of the cells. In other words, you're actually consuming fuel out of your cells. And then chronic pain, mental or physical, your brain actually physically shrinks. Then the final thing, of course, the stress hormones like adrenaline, histamines, all these other things are actually cranking up your body's metabolism to actually to survive. So there's a bunch of aspects of threat physiology that you're going to hold bodies in high alert in order to survive. So the data showed really clearly that chronic stress kills people, causes disease, illness. And what they didn't teach us in medical school is why. So we tend to think it's stress in terms of a psychological construct. It's just your body responding to danger. It's consuming fuel, doing what it can do to stay alive. If you don't go to a rest and regenerate mode or safety mode, you can't replenish the fuel to find another day. So that's why chronic stress, which doesn't allow the body to refuel and regenerate, is what really causes symptoms, illness, and disease. So you brought this up. Mental pain is a far greater problem. This is a direct quote from your book, and you've said this differently. Mental pain is a far greater problem than physical pain, and they both originate from problems at the cellular level because humans don't tolerate emotional pain. So I was complimenting you offline that you do a good job of structuring things so we can understand it. And then we'll get into this kind of, I feel that this gets a bit esoteric a little bit because there's a fine line between this is all in your head and actually this is kind of in your head, but there are steps to change it. So can we first talk about some action items and then I want to get into consciousness and repetitive thoughts, but let's talk about these steps that you've really established for solving physical pain through a mental approach, if you will. So what I've learned since I taught you last, 
that, the, that they are all exactly the same. So it turns out anxiety, depression, bipolar, OCD, and schizophrenia are all inflammatory metabolic problems. They are not psychological, period. So when your body's in fight or flight, your brain's on fire, all these different thought patterns start taking place. All those are bound to be inflammatory metabolic disorders. Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, cardiac disease, autoimmune disorders, cancer, osteoporosis, all those things are also chronic inflammatory disorders. So Dr. Navio is a cell biologist, actually mitochondrial specialist on San Diego. The mitochondria are little engines in every cell that provide energy. So to tell you how complex the body is, there are 30 trillion cells in the human body. Each cell has between 1,000 and 2,000 mitochondria that are generating a chemical action for life. Incredibly complicated. So at the mitochondrial level is when the mitochondrial breaks down as we develop an inflammatory response, it has to complete a healing cycle in order for your body to go to a non-inflammatory regenerative state. So the inability of the mitochondria to complete that cycle is what causes chronic disease. Every chronic disease that I mentioned has the same problem with the mitochondrial breakdown and inability to complete the cycle. They're all the same thing. The mental, physical diseases and pain are all the same exact process. Now, they manifest in different ways, but the root cause is the same. So he made a really succinct comment. So we have it backwards. At the cellular level, even subcellular at the mitochondrial level, the mitochondria cannot differentiate between mental stress and physical stress. You can't tell. It's a threat. So the body perceives threat, your mitochondria and DNA start throwing off fight or flight reactions. And again, sustained reactions are an issue. So your survival occurs at the single cellular level. Bacteria have the same response. The reason why I have a nervous system, because we became complex species and mammals are much more complex than reptiles, more complex than bacteria, but this survival occurs at the cellular level. So in humans, our thinking brain evolved about 100,000 years ago or less. It's an add-on. And so your entire body is a unit with the nervous system being a late development and evolution. And so I don't use the word mind-body anymore. We're just a unit with the nervous system actually being a late development. So you have to address the nervous system, but actually the nervous system is just a way for cells to communicate with each other. At the cellular level, cells communicate with cytokine to cytokine, those little proteins they go cell to cell. And then all of a sudden you have like a cut and the cells say inflammation. So cytokines go out to bring more inflammatory cells to that one spot. Then the brain reads the signals and sends out more signals. But remember the brain is a late response. It's not causing the issue. It's helped coordinate, coordinating the response. So we say the pain is in your body, mental or physical. It's not in your head. Your head's part of your body, of course, mm -hmm. but it's such an incredibly complex unit. So I don't use the word mind-body anymore. I just try to say unit response to a threat or danger. And then the sensation generated by that fight or flight response, one of the manifestations of that sensation is called anxiety. So anxiety is not psychological. It's just a sensation generated by your body's fight or flight response. It's a manifestation of fight or flight. So anxiety just says danger. It's not a psychological diagnosis. And the problem with this, and we'll get into these ruts in a second, which is a repetitive but pleasant thoughts, this is where medicine has really missed the boat. So we put anxiety into a psychological bucket. It is a million times stronger than your conscious brain. And as Bruce Lipton points out most succinctly that the unconscious brain processes about 40 million bits of information per second. The conscious brain processes 40. 
So you remember, human consciousness is a late development in evolution. And so your unconscious brain keeps you alive. It's a gift. But remember, the sensation generated by your fight or flight response is supposed to be incredibly unpleasant because it's a survival sensation. The problem that humans get into with our thinking brain and language, we now put a name to it called anxiety, is supposed to be unpleasant. And we get our identity wrapped up with this survival sensation. And it's what we have, it's not who we are. So let me try to take this massive million to one survival response and control it with conscious means. We have no chance. So you have a fired up body, fired up nervous system, creating all sorts of havoc as far as I need to survive. It's not generating joy. But remember, life is not our friend. We don't have an inherent right to be alive here. Every living creature has to compete for resources, air, food, water, shelter, safety in order to survive. So survival is a challenge. The body is supposed to survive. It's the number one thing. Second thing is you're supposed to pass your genes on to the next generation. That's also not a right either. So thriving is a late experience as far as life in general. Okay. So it's a not a brain issue. It's a body issue. Body and, issue. And what I find is the biggest challenge is making this a tangible thing. You mentioned in your book, you talk about, I am not angry, I think is the title of the subsection. When right. you give people a questionnaire, you ask them a lot about physical pain. You ask them a lot about mental, emotional pain. And so the elephant in the room is when people don't realize or they're kind of stuffing these issues down. And this is actually, for me, I think the biggest roadblock is I can't tell someone they have a problem that they don't think that they have or they don't realize or don't have awareness around. And so let's talk a little bit about that huge issue of there are very clear physical responses to stressors of types, but this person might say, but I don't feel stressed because it's such a common place for them. Can you talk about this a little bit more? Well, there's a bunch of reasons for that. First of all, okay, anxiety is just the sensation generated by fight or flight physiology. So it's intended for you to take action and control a situation causing the anxiety. Well, let's say threat response. When you can't solve it, your body takes in a more intense response to become angry. So anger and anxiety are both threat states. Anger itself is, again, not primarily psychological. It's just a sensation generated where you have to really fight to stay alive. But the problem with anger is it allows approach behavior. Anxiety is flight behavior. There's dopamine involved, so it's addicting. But when you're angry, your chemicals in your body cause the thinking brain to go offline or downregulated. In other words, you have a certain level of stress chemicals that go to the receptors in the brain that shut down the thinking part of the brain. So the, one of the obstacles of being angry is that you can't think clearly. You simply do not have physiological access to that part of your brain. Secondly, is that that inability to think clearly actually blocks your capacity to learn new information. It's also addicting. But the problem that I had personally is that I suppressed it. In other words, it was normalized for me. I was raised in a very anxiety-producing, angry environment, and it was the norm. And it wasn't until I was 50 years old that the word victim actually entered my mind. Because first of all, I was a victim. I was raised in an abusive childhood. My parents were charged to take care of me, and they didn't. So I was a victim. But remember, there's a genealogy of anger, a circumstance, blame, victim, anger. And one of the biggest ways that we tend to be stay angry is perfectionism. Mm. So you're self-critical, which is not very nice. Nothing's perfect. So you blame yourself or the situation is less than perfect. Then you blame less than perfect. You're a victim less than perfect. And you're always angry and frustrated. 
A lot of people use that as a driving force. I'm not good enough. So I use that as a motivator to actually accomplish things, which I did. I didn't know I was angry. I thought perfectionism was a virtue. I had no clue how deadly it was to my body. So before I get really sick, I started having migraine headaches when I was five years old. My ears started to ring when I was in my 30s. My feet started to burn. I had skin rashes popping up, but I didn't feel anxious and I didn't feel angry. Didn't had no idea. In fact, one of the first lies to my wife in 2001, which I'm embarrassed about in retrospect, is that I've dealt with my anger issue. I had no clue I was angry as hell. Didn't have a clue. Every person that heals, including myself, actually acknowledges the victim role. They actually acknowledge their anger. And I don't like the word forgiveness. It's too big of a word. But they learn how to process their stress physiology to lower the anger response. We can talk about that a little bit separately. Every person that truly heals takes full responsibility for their care, 100%, which is the opposite of anger, which is blame. Everyone to the person has truly healed, has learned to acknowledge and process anger. I want to go back to how anger felt like perfectionism to you, because at the end of the day, this is how we accomplish awareness and consciousness is saying something that resonates with someone. And that happened to you as well. For me, I remember, and I've mentioned this a few times on this podcast, but I remember having a moment where I saw something when it talked about how you're not impatient, you're angry. And I just thought I was very impatient, right? Like I wanted to get things done and go places. And maybe you too. That was my, the resonant point for me was that impatience was actually hidden anger. And something that was a more recent thing, you said this maybe a different way, but your brain stops thinking under anger. And so I I have lots of memories I do not access from childhood, from other phases of life. Like my husband will talk about something and I just say, I cannot remember that. And apparently that is a piece of all of this as well. It just manifests as different things. Well, there's a couple of things that happen to the human brain. First of all, I remember the human brain does not tolerate emotional pain. So we suppress it. Turns out that suppressing your emotional pain is actually more inflammatory than actually expressing it. So it actually causes shrinkage of the memory center of your brain called the hippocampus. So suppressed anxiety and anger actually cause damage to your brain. So what else are you supposed to do? We're not taught how to process it. So one of the keys going forward a little bit is that you have this massive survival response. It's a gift. It's your gift of life. You wouldn't survive without it. You couldn't even cross the street without it. So it's a gift. So you can't take it personally. It's just a survival reaction. But we tend to disguise it. So I wrote a list of the disguises of anger of being frustrated, being right, strong opinions, being critical, being self-critical. They're all disguised forms of anger. Blaming anybody for anything at any level is anger. Blaming yourself is, by the way, the biggest problem that we have as far as being the self-critical voice. So anger is universal. It's so normalized that we don't recognize it. The first step in healing is awareness, but again, anger blocks awareness. So the actual disease process blocks the solution. So that's where I do what was called the doc journey, direct your own care. It's a sequence just to start getting your brain back in line. As it starts to open up, then you can start becoming more and more aware. And actually, the final solution, as you pointed out several times, is simply awareness. I mean, forget about all the courses, forget about my course, forget about everything. The number one thing that causes people to heal is simply being aware. And there's also layers around that statement, but that's the essence of the solution is awareness. And anger and anxiety take you out of awareness. I often say here, not my statement, but we're called to change. Maybe we're called to awareness through either desperation or inspiration. And pain is one 
very significant way of desperation. No, Jeff, remember, pain's addicting. Yeah, right. Because pain's powerful, it's addicting, it controls you, it controls other people. And so, again, this is the hardest part about the whole process is the power of pain. Again, physical pain, you can see it, control it. Mental pain, you can't see or control. So the mental pain is what's not tolerated. So your body actually will create physical pain in order to avoid emotional pain. That's why people who do cutting, I didn't realize this. I thought cutting was a distraction. There's actually intense pain relief with cutting. It's not subtle. When people are self-injuring themselves. Well, but they're actually giving themselves pain relief. Actually relieves their pain. Remember, emotional pain and physical pain are processed in similar circuits. The brain can't tell the difference. The mitochondria can't tell the difference. And so cutting actually relieves pain. Mm -hmm. So you've mentioned a couple of times that if we can get to awareness, the next piece is processing it. And the people who heal acknowledge and process their anger. They take responsibility. Can we talk about steps for processing this? The sequence is that the number one thing is always to start being kind to yourself. So you cannot muster your way through this. Mind over matter doesn't work. And so there's two parts to healing. One of those is learning how to develop a working relationship with your survival reactions or fight or flight. It's always going to be there. You can't get rid of it. So the way you lower anxiety and anger should be lower your stress physiology. So that's a separate skill set. The other skill set is nurturing joy. And so the real healing occurs is you move your brain into good food, good wine, good friends, spiritual journey. That's moving away from the pain circuits. But the data also shows if you're nurturing joy to counteract the survival physiology, it's actually inflammatory. Because it's a million to one mismatch of the unconscious versus conscious mind. So learning to regulate your stress physiology is a separate skill set. And there's a process called dynamic healing, which acknowledges that every living creature has to process their environment or stresses. We call it allostatic loaded research. So everybody has stresses in life or challenges. That's the input. Then you have the state of your nervous system that takes all the sensory input in and determines the output of the physiology. So there's the input, the nervous system, and the output. The physiology is what determines your health. So sustained fight or flight or threat physiology causes illness and disease. So you want to decrease time in threat physiology, which will, by the way, always be there. You want to maximize your time in safety. So there's three portals to do that. So directly lowering stress physiology is things like breath work, rubbing your forehead, humming, all stimulate what's called the vagus nerve, which is highly anti-inflammatory. So you can directly lower the stress physiology with the nervous system. If your nervous system is hyperactive versus calm, it takes less stress to set off the fight or flight. So things that improve the resiliency of the nervous system are exercise is a big one. Sleep is huge. And then diet is also a big deal. Because you're, if you're eating a really highly inflammatory diet, again, your nervous system's on fire. This is also the place where trauma therapy comes into place. And is trauma therapy geared towards helping you feel safe. In other words, just visualize a feral cat that doesn't feel safe ever, and it shouldn't. So you can't talk to a feral cat. You can't convince it. You have to allow it to teach the tools that feel safe. So good trauma therapy isn't talk therapy. It's just using tools to allow yourself to calm down and feel safe. So again, the, the physiology, there's ways of calming things down, breath work, humming, rubbing your forehead, stimulate the vagus star. You can increase the resiliency of the nervous system. But the part that's really critical is the input. What do you put in your brain that keeps you fired up? So the starting point for every person that's yelled is called expressive writing. And we know that thoughts, unpleasant thoughts, actually fire up your physiology. So what do we do with unpleasant thoughts? We suppress them, which actually makes them worse. So there's a thing we call thought diversion, 
or expressive writing, so we write down the thoughts and tear them up. Now, you're not tearing them up to get rid of these thoughts because there's quadrillions of thoughts, but you're simply separating from the thoughts and you're tearing them up because you don't want to analyze them because they're just thoughts. You cannot control your thoughts and you don't want to analyze them. All these issues that come up aren't issues, they're just thoughts. So expressive writing is big. Mindfulness takes your brain off your pain and other physical sensations or mental sensations and simply goes to a different sensation. So mindfulness works. Cognitive restructuring, changing your thought patterns, was called cognitive therapy. Again, changes your thought patterns. But the other one that's really interesting and really challenging is what are you loading in your brain? So we don't let people discuss their pain, no complaining, no criticism, no malicious gossiping, no going on the internet looking for solutions all day long. So it's really hard for people to quit complaining and to quit talking about their pain. Really hard. But if, as long as you're complaining, you can't heal. You're blaming, complaining, all sorts of stuff. So anyway, that's not the full thing. Just the feeling you get, you, you can process your input differently. You can increase your resilience of your nervous system. You can calm down your fight or flight. But at the end of the day, sustained exposure to fight or flight is what causes symptoms, illness, and disease. You also mentioned disillusion of the ego. And I suppose we talked about this a few times in different ways. And I imagine this was a journey for you as a spine surgeon, realizing the work I'm doing isn't helping people. And I've got to relearn all the things. So dissolution of ego can mean a lot of things. Anything you want to say about that? Well, it's also a process. In other words, you have firefly physiology, and we create these stories to feel better about ourselves. In other words, we develop self-esteem, we develop ego. So first of all, it's the adjustment pattern, better than or worse than. So self-esteem is actually deadly. Plus, it's a mismatch. It's a million-one mismatch on the survival versus your conscious brain. So what happens as you learn how to calm down your survival response, again, we talked about the dynamic healing model, you don't need the storage. You don't need an ego. And so we're tortured with what I call rush, repetitive, unpleasant thoughts. And they're considered unsolvable in the mental health world with the mental health world missed with the physiology badly. So you put anxiety in here into a psychological bucket, and they're the driving force. So a fired-up brain fires up these thoughts. Once the thoughts are out in the open, these bad thoughts can be counteracted by good thoughts, but the driving force is still going on the brain. Then the unpleasant thoughts actually fire the brain back up. So you have a fired-up brain, fired-up thoughts. Then there's other things in life that fire up the brain. So calming down the nervous system is the key issue actually solving these repetitive and pleasant thoughts. So what happens is that it's like taking a hornet's nest and shaking the hornet's nest. The hornets are out of the nest. They're not very happy. You're trying to solve them with a fly swatter. They're already out of the nest. So the real answer is quit shaking the nest. So as far as solving these repetitive and pleasant thoughts, is that we talk about thought diversion with expressive writing but also calming down the nervous system is a huge deal. And when people have problems with repetitive, unpleasant thoughts, as you calm down the nervous system, they drop down dramatically. And then the third part where the healing actually occurs is you move your brain and do what's good. So going back to the original conversation, that you learn how to develop a working relationship with your survival physiology, you develop to nurture joys, a separate process, that's where the healing actually occurs, is actually moving into circuits that are positive, with the brain being so neuroplastic or changing every second, you can create any person that you want. So instead of fixing the problem, which reinforces the problem, you actually move into light. So in other words, quit fighting the darkness, just turn on the light. So again, the reason about the dissolution of the ego is that you can't make it dissolve. 
but with awareness, you can allow it to dissolve. So once you quit trying to fight the survival physiology, you don't need the story, you don't need the self-esteem, the ego starts to dissolve. So I developed severe problems with intrusive thoughts and they're gone. I don't have the random thoughts I had before I got sick. When I talk to my patients now or people I'm working with, I'm not practice anymore. I mean, these thoughts really cause a lot of suffering. The problem is for the human race, I think that we have the curse of consciousness, which are these unpleasant thoughts. The gift of consciousness is language, art, spirituality. But if you are fighting off your anxiety and frustration, you can't allow the blessing of consciousness to come to life. So I call it the curse of consciousness. You're fired up brain, fired up unpleasant thoughts. And as human beings, well developed since we use similar strategies for emotional pain that we do for physical pain which is power and control, we develop these identities that are bulletproof. And so we're a bunch of Assange right around planet Earth. And these stories cause us to do really terrible things to each other. So it's your facade versus my facade. We have nations have their identities and powers and whatever. So this need to establish and maintain an identity causes a lot of suffering in the human race. So to me, in a way, this is the next evolution of the human experience is that as we truly understand the driving forces, this threat physiology, or what makes it worse again is that under threat physiology, your thinking brain gets down regulated. You can't think clearly. We have domestic abuse. We have nations that are really doing bad things for the nations. And because at every level of our being is these physical survival reactions that we're using for emotional survival. So I put a lot of energy into maintaining my facade, perfectionism, self-esteem, all these accomplishments, et cetera. But I wasn't connected to me. I was connected to the facade. So if I didn't know me, how can I know you? So by understanding the driving force behind these repetitive and pleasant thoughts that I call ruts is the fired up brain. By calming down the brain, things start to change. I was going to say, you know, that's the complaint (laughs) is that the world is this fired up, stress-inducing speed machine. Like people are in this kind of vat of stress inducers. And so, you know, how do people come out of that? And I think the answer is consciousness. Is it con- but this word has been really, I feel, not tangible, for sure. But, but here's the issue, is that's what the process, that's why the doctor is in a sequence. You've mm-hmm. got to get the brain back online first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To calm yourself down enough to think. There's a friend of mine in her that we're called pendulation. Then no matter what phase you're going through, let's say you start the expressive writing, and your emotional pain fires up to the point that you can't tolerate it, you stop the writing. In other words, no matter what phase of the game you're in, you learn to be kind to yourself. We have a little exercise in my group that if somebody irritates you, you, you take the hit, you don't try to suppress it, and then you mentally, silently wish them well. Because when you get triggered, it's you, it's not them. And when you judge somebody badly, you're simply projecting the judgment on yourself onto somebody else. Mm-hmm. So you can just with those repetition training things, you can train your brain to be benevolent. So we use the word consciousness is that anytime you're anxious or frustrated, you're reacting to something in the past. You've lost awareness. So it's a learned skill to train your brain to be connected to the present moment. And it doesn't just happen. So when you use a concept that want to be conscious, you can't do that. You're using a conscious construct to deal with these survival reactions. So again, once you learn how to develop a working relationship with your massive survival reactions, you can't take them personally because they're universal. Once you de-identify your identity from these survival reactions, then your brain can thrive and grow whatever direction that you wish. Mm -hmm. And that's what's so exciting about the project I've been working on. And 
Bruce and I did four videos together. Bruce and I did four videos together going through this whole process. And he's brilliant. He understands exactly what's going on. And he, he wrote the book Biology of Belief several decades ago. And I read it initially. I just sort of go, yeah, fine, whatever. But he's dead on right. Your environment and belief systems actually change your body's chemistry. Yeah. And so as you learn to change your body's chemistry, then you start opening up and consciousness can evolve. Yeah. What I want to ask you, and this is the concern I think people have, is do they have to quit their life and their job and move to an island to change their body's chemistry if some of the external environment is stressful? Well, that depends. Okay, so one of the metaphors I use is that of a major league baseball player. So your learning skills are processed to your stress physiology. So some people are living at home in horrendous circumstances, and it's hard to learn when you're in such adverse circumstances. So I made a choice, and registered may not have been the best choice. So avoiding stress becomes its own stress. So running from stress isn't really the answer. So eventually, you should become highly skilled at processing stress and keeping your body chemistry in a favorable profile. You can take on anything. Not that you can, you're not suppressing it, you're not being tough, you become flexible and resilient. So the answer is you do not have to do anything different in your life right now. The reality is, though, if you're just learning, is that the stresses may be so overwhelming, you don't have the space in your brain to learn. So the eventual goal is actually, if you choose to go to a quieter place, great, but you do it on your terms. You're not doing it because you have to avoid stress. That being said, the metaphor I use is that, is that instead of trying to solve your pain, you're trying to develop skills to simply regulate your physiology. So the metaphor I use is that of a major league baseball player who life is the pitcher, you're the hitter. Remember, the pitcher is not your friend. Staying alive is not your friend. So the pitcher's trying to make you make it out. And your goal as a hitter is to get on base safely. And so even the best hitters make it out half the time. So there's always diddity, good days, bad days. Some days you're flexible, some days you're not. So it's a very dynamic process that you learn to process adversity more quickly, learn to nurture joy more consistently. But also remember there's single A, double A, triple A ball, and the major league. So if you're in a majorly stressful situation, but you're only a single A player, be like me standing up in the batter's box trying to hit a 90-mile-an-hour fastball when I can't even see a 40-mile-an-hour fastball. So you have to give yourself a break. So you can learn the process and your circumstances you're in, great. You need to take a break, do it. Eventually, it doesn't matter what stresses come at you. You get better. You get better. You're resilient. It's a skill set. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's not, so the focus isn't solving your pain because your attention's on the pain. The goal is simply developing the skills to live life more effectively. Mm, that's great. So I am going through a journey where I'm electing, trying to decide on the tools, the nervous system journey tools that are most effective for clients, right? Because this is the most obnoxious thing for me when the nervous system is dysregulated. You have mentioned the doc journey, which means, I think, direct your own care is what that's short for, direct your own care. Tell me about how you, this happened over time. Even you said you have very different tools, I'm sure, and you've updated. I mean, how do we not stop growing from four years ago? Tell me a little bit about how you told us how you found expressive writing, I think, but tell me how you pulled together some of these other tools. More so the, how does it, I always love to know behind the scenes a little bit. So tell me how some of these tools came into play into the doc journey. How did you find them? How did you test, et cetera? So what happened in 2020, I met Dr. Stephen Porges and his wife, Sue Carter. 
So he wrote a book called The Polyvagal Theory, and he and his wife, Sue, are just geniuses as far as the autonomic nervous system that regulates the body's response to stresses. And so it's something we should have been learned in medical school. It just, the clinicians in the group are just flabbergasted, speechless at what we're learning. So the Don Journey course, the, the Director on Care Journey course, is based on the physiology now. So the book I wrote in 2016 is a great book. It tells you the basic concept of anxiety and anger, but I did not understand the physiology until 2020. So the Don Journey, I have an app that's based on awareness, hope, forgiveness, and play. Turns out play is the opposite physiological state of threat. And so the all, but he, it's not a distracting play, it's just a sense of play. So what happens is that the core is essentially the third edition of my book is the doc journey. So there's a sequence. I just put some tools in a place to calm things down. Then it explains the principles behind the solution. Then the third step or third leg is about anxiety being a physiological state and how to regulate that. The fourth one, which is right in the middle, is awareness. Awareness of the environment, of your stories, of your patterns. Then the real healing occurs when you hit anger in leg five. Because again, when you're angry, you can't heal. Every person that's healed, hundreds of them have always learned how to process anger. The sixth step is that we're programmed by our entire life up to this very second. The beauty of the neuroplastic changing brain is that from this second on, you can program in anything that you want. So it's whole, about the whole process about becoming a professional living your life. And so it's programming and repetition, so it becomes automatic. Then the final step is constructing the life that you want. And you use a metaphor of building a house with each room representing part of your life. Kitchen being diet, the family room being social relationships, lots of things you can do to create your life. So the problem is we get you know, so used to surviving that we don't know how to create anymore. So the healing occurs in creating the life that you want if you learn how to speak French, you're not going to learn French by avoiding English. You have to learn French. The default language for the human being is survival. The language that you want to learn is an enjoyable life. And to have an enjoyable life, you actually have to live an enjoyable life. It takes practice. So you're reprogramming your brain, and you're coming out of a fixing solution into a creating mode. So as you create the life that you want, you truly leave the pain circuits behind. People completely heal. I have no symptoms. I don't. Now, my current challenge is one of nurturing joy. I'm an obsessive surgeon, so it's been a challenge for me to truly nurture joy. But I'm working on it. My wife might disagree, but I'm working on it. We all have but our own we, baseline. So the thing is, this isn't work. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a fraction of the work it takes of fighting off your physiology. So there's your tools. So, and the sequence is designed to go maybe 15 minutes a day at the most. You don't rush through the course and get fixed. It's like learn how to play the piano. You learn the skills and practice. Go to the next step. So... The doctor is a sequence that allows you to heal at your own pace. Again, I recommend no more than 15 to 20 minutes a day at the most. And once you get to a certain sort of rest off between each leg, it's intended to actually implement and practice the tools that you just learned. People say, well, I read my book. They read back in control and it still hurt. Well, of course. If I can yeah. read a piano book, I'm not going to play the piano. Right. You're basically becoming a professional at living your life. Why not? Now, when I, I said to rant for a second, I mean, actually, these are skills you should have been taught in elementary school. Yeah. None of these are very hard. Yeah. I think that's a perfect, I'm not saying ending point, but you just mentioned these are skills to learn in elementary school. And as a parent, something that has distressed me with awareness of it is that everyone is perceiving their experiences. Every child grows up with whatever experience. And they, we all have things to process. It, we're, none of us are immune. 
What advice do you have to parents for facilitating consciousness, joy, etc. in childhood so we can start to teach these skills? So I have this conversation with parents all the time. Mm. So people say, what can I do to help my kid be happier? What can I do to do this and this? The number one answer is let go. Nobody likes to be told what to do, especially your kids, number one. Say, well, your kids are not going to be less stressed than the parents. So it's like, if you want your kids to heal and thrive, you have to do it yourself. So I always recommend, so the last two years of my practice, by the way, were almost exclusively with family units because the family is a huge factor of pe- keeping people in pain. They're also a huge factor of keeping people out of, pulling people out of pain. So I say, look, if you want your kids to heal, your kids are not going to be less stressed than you are. So I really highly recommend that the parents individually, but as but both parents, if they're in the household, go through the process themselves for six weeks, 12 weeks, and then start manifesting the changes they want to see in their children. There's a process called mirror neurons that are somebody yawns, people start to yawn, somebody laughs, people start to laugh. It's not psychological. You're actually stimulating that part of the brain. Mm-hmm. So if you want your child to relax, then just relax yourself, develop an attitude of play or playfulness, and your kids will change. But you're not doing it as a manipulative tool. Maybe they change, maybe they don't. So it's a process of learning the tools yourself, actually manifesting what you're learning in your family, create a place of, I mean, everybody wants to feel safe, especially your children. So if you're coming home and laughing and getting along with each other, it makes a difference that's huge. We also have one of the rules we worked on, which is really challenging, is that you have to build an absolute safe house in your house. In other words, if you get into an argument or fight, it doesn't matter which people in the house do it, it goes outside. Your house has to be an absolute sanctuary. You can relax and know it's going to be safe. Mm. So a lot of structure, not a lot of psychology, family meetings, directives, rules. That's not rules, but more agreements about how to get along with each other. Anyways, there's a massive amount of things that can be done in the family situation, but the parents themselves have to manifest it themselves. They cannot expect the kids to be less stressed than they are. Yeah. I think anytime I ask a question like that of a guest, they give a similar answer, but yours was very tangible. Some very good snippets there. And thanks for mentioning mirror neurons as well, because it's such a thing we can understand, right? We've all experienced it. Well, it goes a little further because the groups I'm working with right now is parents blame the kids for being disruptive. So the way is absolutely the other way around. It's the parents act the way they are that actually causes the kids to be disruptive. Mm-hmm. Say more. Completely backwards. What do parents do that create kids to be disruptive? They breathe the troubles at home. They come in bad mood. I have a one rule, one harsh rule or hard rule that do not walk in the front door if you're angry. Mm-hmm. If you're having a bad day at work, don't walk in the door. Mm-hmm. So what you want to do is be a source of peace, love, and joy. Of course, parents argue with each other. If you're going to argue, take it outside. There's so many things you can do, but people are stressed, and they somehow think home is the place to bring it to. And it should be the opposite. You want your home to be a place you can actually regenerate. You don't want to be a place to solve your problems. If you can't have a place at home that you can create that's safe, where are you going to create safety? So most people, including myself, again, I'm guilty as charged. We still look at a place to just, quote, take it on to people, do our thing, vent, whatever it is. That's the last place you should ever vent or take things on to people is your family. Never. There's never excuse to act. I should take out your frustrations on any family member. You're just doing damage. Such good sentiments to end with. Dr. Hanska, I always enjoy our conversations. Where would you like people to find you online? 
So I do have a SurfSage website called backincontrol.com, one word, backincontrol.com. Then there's a resources page that I think I sent you that links to everything that I do. So we have the DOC Journey app, which is a little more playful and interactive. My wife and stepdaughter put that together. Then the doctorate course is a bit more detailed and more systematic. I coach twice a week on Tuesdays and Thursdays. There's also links to Psychology Today, which now has over 1.3 million views on it about anxiety being another day for pain. So my book is Back in Control. I have a book on spine surgery. The current book I'm writing is on ruts, which I think will be the biggest thing I'll ever contribute in my lifetime. I mean, I can't tell you how much people suffer from these repetitive and pleasant thoughts. Again, they're considered unsolvable by the mental health profession, and they are completely solvable. They're just solvable. And I, I can tell you dozens of stories already of people that are coming out of it very quickly. We learn not to take your physiology personally. It's just game on. So I'm super excited about this new book. I think I'm going to call it Transcending the Curse of Consciousness Ruts. Are they coming out of ruts because they're working on through the linear tools? See, we try to control our thoughts. You cannot control your thoughts in any way, shape, or form. So again, as you calm down the physiology, it's like that hornet's nest. You quit shaking the hornet's nest, the thoughts keep coming up. You calm down the thoughts dramatically. So again, I had as bad of intrusive thoughts as you can ever imagine. They are gone, simply gone. I have a friend of mine who's a professional who has severe intrusive thoughts for 15 years, full-blown OCD. And in three months, he has no OCD. It's just gone. Well, what I have to ask this because people are going to want to know, well, how do you... Because I would say there would be a lot of people that would argue with you on, can you change your thoughts? You cannot change your thoughts. You can calm down your physiology and the thoughts do what they're going to do. And as you calm down the physiology, remember that the the reason for the thoughts, you create this ego and story to make yourself feel better about these horrible survival sensations. And once you learn how to develop a working relationship with those and quit reacting to them and quit taking them personally, you don't need the thoughts. Your ego really does disappear. When you move your brain into creativity and play, that's a long, you're moving a long ways away from these thoughts. So as you put your brain towards create, my mind spins a lot, but it's on create, creative things. How do I solve this? What do I do here? Where can I go next? My brain stopped ruminating on things I can't control. So I cannot control negative thoughts. None of us can. It is considered unsolvable in the mental health profession, but again, they put anxiety and air in a psychological bucket instead of it being this massive physiological state. So that's the whole key with dynamic healing, that you learn how to calm down your physiology through how you process input, how you create flexibility in your nervous system, how you directly regulate the body's physiology. Again, we call it dynamic healing. So again, the people go through the dog journey actually have a dramatic decrease in short repetitive and pleasant thoughts. It only hit me about six weeks ago. I mean, I just had this massive explosion in my head about all the stuff coming together over 20 years of, actually 30 years of searching for an answer for my own obsessive thought patterns. And it hit me hard. I was swore I would never write another book. It's just too hard to do. But I'm pretty compelled to write it. I've sent the parts of the drafts out to people already who are just super excited about it actually coming around very quickly. Once you understand that you cannot control your thoughts in any, any way, shape, or form, you learn to separate from them, but as you learn just to calm your body down, it just goes away. It's not work. It's much less work than trying to fight these things all the time. Yeah, I think there's a expression called doing the work. And I think one of the challenges is that it feels ambiguous to people. And I think sometimes people have gone through this, where they've done different things for their nervous system and it's calmed their physiology, but maybe they couldn't put their finger on some of the things. You know, it can look different. There's a lot of modalities, right, to calm the nervous system. 
Well, this gets tricky. I'm going to try this. Let me try this one and see what happens. Perfect. So one of my friends brought up very succinctly where you read self-help books, you spend too much time even on my stuff, the doc journey, or you try this find mindfulness, let's try better diet, let's try exercise, let's try all these different things. You're actually reinforcing physiology. You're trying to fix it. So again, going to the major league baseball players, here's developing a skill set to live life more efficiently and more professionally. So again, you should learn how to relate your physiology more effectively. You learn how to nurture joy. They're two separate skill sets. The key issue is never one thing that solves a problem. It's an overall competency about how you do it. Like a golf swing. I have the worst golf swing in the world. I don't play golf very well, but some of the best golfers in the world have terrible golf swing. They do it their way, but they practice, practice and became proficient at it. So again, reading my book, doing my courses, not going to change anything. The question is, are you willing to learn the skills to actually regulate your physiology and how to nurture joy? So you're learning skills. You're not trying to fix your pain. So again, when you're jumping from treatment to treatment to fix your pain, you're actually reinforcing threat physiology. Yeah. And I think trying to control things in general is a huge reinforcement of threat physiology. So when you say, when you reprogram, oh, we're actually not trying to fix We're actually trying to learn skills to regulate physiology and nurture joy. It takes away the pressure, perhaps, to perform, to perfect, to achieve. These are all things for us that we all struggle with, right? Let me ask you a question. Why are we doing all that in the first place? That is a great question. Why are we being a perfectionist? Why are we wanting to achieve? What are we trying to prove? Because remember, one of the initial steps is you separate your identity from your survival reactions. That's one of the biggest steps is that you do not have to take these survival reactions personally because 100%, they are a gift of life. And so as you separate from, it's what you have, it's not who you are. So you learn about this co-working relationship with that. <clears throat> you allow you to coexist with your survival reactions and things change dramatically because you're not fighting it. You have the energy to be creative. Let me try another metaphor, see how this resonates with you. We're all familiar with artificial intelligence, and I'm not an expert at all. But I was taught that computers that play chess is basically artificial intelligence. So the way a computer becomes skilled to beat a chess master is that you have to put the right rules into the computer. It has to be taught how to play chess by a chess master in order to become a master that beats the master. So you have to put in good data and you have to have a good processing system. If you have the rules in there, but you teach them my skills, which are very limited, the computer is never going to be good enough to actually, you know, the master. You had to put in a good database. So the human brain is very similar, is that we're programmed our entire life. The data that gets loaded into our computers isn't great from a lot of us, especially with childhood trauma. Then we don't have a processing system that works correctly. So we have bad data and bad processing system. As a human race, we're sort of screwed. So what you're doing with the principles of the dog journey or similar sort of concepts is you're choosing to put in better data, i.e., for instance, not discussing your pain or complaining. That's better data. And you learn how to process it differently. You have a different processing system. So what's exciting is that we're programmed by every second of our life up to this very second right now. So there's no such thing as an authentic self. We're actually programmed by who everybody else thinks we should be. So who are we? So the beauty of that is from this second on, this very second on, you can program in anything that you want, anything. The brain is incredibly neuroplastic, so you're trying to fix the problem, which reinforces the problem, you can program who you choose to be. Now, again, you have to process stress physiology, so you can actually get your vision back about who you want to be. But getting your vision, the sense of play, 
connecting with what you want is actually help people heal. So again, this is a creating process, but with incredible neuroplasticity in the brain, people not only heal, they really heal. It's unbelievable how, I mean, their entire body transforms. And once you hit a certain tipping point, you keep going that other direction. But remember with the human psyche, people do not tolerate mental pain. So I'm asking you up your physical pain so you can feel more mental pain. That's not going to work, right? So as you learn to teach people how to tolerate the mental pain and open the door a little bit at a time, that's why you have the sequence that we do, is that you learn to tolerate the mental pain. Pretty soon it's not a big deal. Pretty soon you start thriving going forward. So you learn how to process physical pain and mental pain, and then you just keep creating. So again, it's like learning a new language. You're creating a new life. So it's that creativity that actually solves the problem. So what we did notice in medical school is the brain is incredibly neuroplastic. You can create anything that you want. You can program in whatever you want. And it's that repetition that allows you to heal. Well, I always love a lot of good analogies. There is a skill to being able to make kind of this mental mush into something that is tangible, I think. People knowing there's the levels of not knowing that this is a problem knowing it's a problem, but not being able to do anything with it, and then making tangible changes to reprogram, create new processing, and changing things. Dr. David Hanscom, thank you for coming back. And I look forward to the... I know the book will be a little bit of a journey. It might be the easiest one you've written yet. It might just happen so quickly. And then maybe there's even another conversation after you get to see it all come to life. It's about three-fourths done. I mean, it's it's all in my form. Six weeks, three-fourths done. No problem. It's almost done. The serious I like is my frustration. Life keeps coming out, and so I don't have time to finish it. But no, I'm going to this trip for three weeks. I'm taking it off and going to finish the book in the next three weeks. So I'm pretty excited about it. Cool. Well, docandcontrol.com. You can find all the resources and the other websites from there. We'll have that in the show notes. Thanks again for coming on today. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Sharing and reviewing this podcast is the best way to help us succeed with our mission to help integrate the best of East and West and empower you to raise the bar on your health story. Just go to reviewthispodcast.com forward slash less stressed life. That's reviewthispodcast.com forward slash less stressed life. And you'll be taken directly to a page where you can insert your review and hit post. Post.